6: Humans are allergic to change. They love to say, we've always done it this way. I try to fight that. That's why I have a clock on my wall that runs counterclockwise. A clock that runs counterclockwise. Sounds
7: like something you might read in a biography of Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg, maybe Bill Gates. It is the quote of a tech innovator, Grace Hopper, the woman who catapulted the world into the fourth industrial revolution, the age of technology.
2: The fourth industrial revolution is where we create a machine which can actually mimic the brain.
7: That's Dr. Kurt Beyer, an advisor to entrepreneurs in disruptive technologies at University of California, Berkeley.
2: And each of the previous industrial revolutions were started by a group of individual inventors, say a Thomas Edison or a Tesla or a Watt. Grace Hopper was that person for the fourth industrial revolution. Yet, when I would talk to people here in Silicon Valley, I was in shock that most people didn't even know who she was. It was Grace
7: Hopper who fundamentally changed the way early computers worked. So much so that almost everything we do today wouldn't be possible without her. From iHeartRadio and Tribeca Studios, this is Fierce.
6: I can't type.
2: Yes, women workers do present problems, Joe. A
7: podcast about the incredible women who never made it in your history books, and the modern women carrying on their legacies today.
0: Here's to the ladies, the fair and the weak.
6: I can't file. women workers don't mind routine, repetitive work. Will you
2: make a copy of this?
7: Naturally. Each week, we're bringing you the story of a groundbreaking woman from the past who made huge contributions to the present, but whose name still isn't on the tips of our tongues for whatever reason. Maybe it's because men wrote most of history. At the end of each episode, I'll be joined by a woman living today who's standing on the shoulders of this historical figure, whether she knows it or not. Grace Hopper was born in New York City on December 9th, 1906 the eldest of three children to a fairly progressive family with parents who saw the education of girls as equal to the education of boys. Her father was an insurance broker. Her mother had a passion for mathematics, which might've taken her far, had barriers for women at the time not been so high. As a kid, Grace liked to take apart household appliances to learn how they worked. She graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Vassar College in 1928 with a BA in mathematics and physics. But her education didn't end there. She went on to get a master's and a Ph.D. in mathematics from
2: Yale. In prominent families in New York City in the 1920s, it was almost expected that the women would go to college and get educated.
7: That's Dr. Beyer again. He wrote a book on the first 30 years of the computer age and titled it Grace Hopper and the Invention of the Information Age.
2: One thing that I think struck me was the fact that women's progress is not linear, it actually goes up and down. So we had, during this period, women getting not only undergrad degrees but graduate degrees at an unprecedented rate, and that rate wasn't matched until 1989.
7: Grace got married soon after graduation to Vincent Foster Hopper, a scholar who would soon join the English faculty at NYU. After that, she was hired into the mathematics faculty at Vassar, It wasn't her first choice of career. I wanted to be an engineer. That's an actress reading Grace's words. You also heard her at the start of the episode. The sources for these quotes are her biographer, Kurt Beyer, and an interview conducted
6: by Angeline Pantage for the Computer History Museum. My grandfather had been a civil engineer, and he was a senior civil engineer in the city of New York. He used to take me with him when he went out surveying, and he let me hold the red and white pole. He also let me look through his gadget and I wanted to be an engineer. My dad always made things. I've always been fascinated with how things work and making things work, but there was no place at all for women in engineering when I graduated.
2: In the 30s, when she started working, we saw one of these cycles again where women didn't have as many opportunities, and that in part was created by the Great Depression. So we don't really have an explosion of opportunity for women again until the war years, until the 1940s.
7: So academia it was, and Grace made the most of it. She was insatiably curious and took classes in everything from zoology to architecture to astronomy. She brought all of that newfound knowledge into her mathematics classroom, and that made her a wildly popular instructor who actually made math interesting.
6: The establishment, of course, didn't love Grace's approach. They disapproved of practically everything I did because I wasn't doing the right things. I was going off into things which were not mathematics. One former student
7: remembered it differently, saying simply that Grace was an inspiration. Everything about the world changed in 1941.
2: War
6: now covers the globe. December the 7th was the day of infamy. Japan turns the once Pacific Ocean into a sea of blood. Wholesale war blackens the sky in the east and
7: west. In the wake of Pearl Harbor and America's entrance into World War II, Grace was eager to join the war effort.
2: I think a lot of people after Pearl Harbor were interested in joining the war effort. Her husband at the time, Vince Foster, He did join the war effort.
6: I wanted, very badly, to get into the Navy. So, I finally gave Vassar an ultimatum. If they wouldn't release me, I would stay out of work for six months because I was going into the Navy, period. Now in her mid-30s, Grace was considered too old for service.
7: But she used her mathematics degree to get an exception, and the military was in desperate need of mathematicians. They let her report to Midshipman School in December of 1943. She absolutely loved it.
2: Midshipman camp is the officer's version of boot camp in the Navy. And usually this is a very difficult time for most young people. I found quotes from her where she said it was one of the most relaxing times of her life because she didn't have all the responsibilities of family and teaching at Vassar on her shoulders.
7: Around this time, our marriage began to suffer. Or maybe it had been suffering for a long time and this was a way out.
2: I never was able to get to the root of it. But I suspect that the fact that they went their separate ways trying to serve the country after Pearl Harbor was somewhat connected in terms of maybe their marriage wasn't as solid as it could have been.
7: the military quickly made her a part of a team working on the Bureau of Ordnance Computation Project at Harvard University. She was working on the Mark I, a calculating machine, or rather a computer, the first large-scale automatic digital computer in the United States.
2: Grace worked on the very first computer. It was a top-secret program at Harvard during World War II. Those first computers were built like any other human technology up to that point. They were built to just do one thing, And that sounds so strange to us now, but that's how technology was always created. You invented a typewriter, and all it did was typewrite, right? It invented a hammer, and use it to hammer nails. Meaning the Mark
7: I and other early computers were actually physically built to solve one kind of problem. Say a physics or engineering problem too unwieldy for humans to calculate. There was no such thing as software. If you wanted the computer to solve a different kind of problem, you essentially had to reconfigure the machine.
6: Every single time. It was Grace Hopper who invented a way around that. I started to work on the Mark I, 2nd of July, 1944. There was no such thing as a programmer at that point. We had a code book for the machine, and that was all. It listed the codes, what they did, and we had to work out all the beginning of programming, and writing programs, and all the rest of it.
7: Grace was working under a man named Howard Aiken at the time. And Aiken made no secret of the fact that he was annoyed the Navy had assigned him a woman. He was vocal about it with the other men on the staff.
2: She was assigned as the number two person at the project. Aiken at first was very upset about this. He didn't expect that a woman would be named number two.
7: But Grace's mathematical skill set was in high demand at that wartime moment, and she was deemed the best available person for the job.
2: If you're going to play by the rules of the military, she's the second highest ranking person at the facility, so that means that she's second in charge. He quickly came to realize how amazing she was at actually getting this machine to function because at that point it was still a prototype.
6: When I walked in there, Aiken had not wanted a woman officer, and I had said he was going to want a woman officer. Despite the outward hostility, Grace was in her
7: element in the lab. She went about learning everything there was to learn about the machine, Spent many sleepless nights going over blueprints, circuit diagrams. The groundbreaking realization she had was that rather than starting from scratch with every new problem the war effort presented, she could create these building blocks of code that could be stored in the library. This was literally a broom closet where she and her team hung the paper tape that was used to code the machine. The 50-foot, 5-ton machine. Coders today use the same technique. Borrowing blocks of code, often available for free on the internet rather than reinventing every component of the wheel every single time.
2: Once they created, say, the cosine paper tape code, they could save that in a library. And then if they were asked a different type of problem to solve that needed, say, a cosine, they could just add in that part of the cosine code with other code that they were creating to get the machine to then solve new equations.
6: Commander Howard H. Aiken came up to my desk one day and he said, you're going to write a book. I said, I can't write a book. And he said, you're in the Navy now. That settled that and I learned to write a book.
7: Grace authored a 500-plus page manual of the Mark I's operations. It would end up becoming one of the formative documents about how early computers worked.
2: She was great at not only theorizing how to do it, but then... Helping her team and training her team to actually make it a reality.
6: I wrote about five pages a day, which I had to read to Aiken at the end of the day. If he rejected them, I had to start them over again. It was a
7: programming manual, even though the word programmer didn't exist back then.
6: I was a mathematical officer. We ran the computer. We did everything. We were
2: coders. I wrote programs for both Mark I and Mark II. This is the point where Hopper starts creating the initial fundamentals of programming.
7: While Grace Hopper can't be credited with the invention of the computer itself, the hardware, she can be credited with the leap of imagination it took to make the computer into something vastly more useful than it was originally intended to be.
2: So it was Hopper that said, well, if we can get the computer to reconfigure itself, then we can have it solve lots of different problems.
7: It was no small task. The US government wanted a calculating machine that could solve all different kinds of engineering problems for warships and aircraft, even calculate
6: rocket trajectories. The whole drive was just on one thing, just win the war. There was one special phone which was directly connected to the Bureau of Ordnance in Washington. Well, we used to shake every time that darn thing rang.
2: The issue at that time is World War II starts becoming a war of scientific and mathematical calculations. For instance, Hopper and her team solved the implosion problem for the nuclear bomb. That probably could not have possibly been solved using the old techniques.
7: Howard Aiken was proven wrong about Grace. Very wrong. He would later concede...
4: Grace was a good man.
7: Grace Hopper may have sold Aiken on the fact that she was just as skilled as any man, but Harvard was another story. While Aiken continued to live the charmed life of a tenure-track professor at the university, Grace Hopper was a mere faculty research fellow
6: with a three-year contract. They didn't promote women at Harvard at that point, so at the end of three years, my time was up.
2: She's now at the cutting edge of this new technology. We, of course, know how important that technology would become. Yet she wasn't asked to be a professor at Harvard because they didn't have women professors at Harvard, where Howard Aiken was given a full professorship at Harvard. She was asked to leave the Navy because they shut down the WAVES program. So she finds herself in 1947 Without a professorship, without a job, an expert at this new cutting-edge field, but pretty much the society wasn't allowing her to continue.
7: Being in the Navy had always been one of Grace's most treasured dreams. To make it in and to a position of high command, no less. And then, because of her gender, to be asked to leave. That must have been devastating.
2: I think that's probably the most tragic part of her story. This is actually a period where she she struggles with alcoholism as well.
7: For as outspoken as she was, Grace was an incredibly private person. And that means we don't know much about her personal struggles. What we do know is that her drinking and depression escalated while working under the intense wartime pressure. It became an actual problem when her time at Harvard came to an end. In November of 1949, Grace was arrested at 3 a.m. for drunk and disorderly conduct. She was placed into hospital custody for treatment. They eventually released her to her friend Edmund Berkeley. According to Bayer, Berkeley was desperate to help her. He wrote Grace an impassioned intervention letter. Berkeley wrote that her alcoholic habit had, quote, warped most of the intellectual processes that you would ordinarily use to attack your alcoholism. He appealed to Grace's intellect and her ego. He told her her brain was too important to waste. Little is known about Grace's road to recovery, but we do know she relied on the support of Berkeley and her community in order to overcome her addiction. We'll be back with more of Grace's story after a quick break.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022, Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day.
4: Beyond Zero is their vision to go beyond carbon neutrality, and they're working toward it with a diverse lineup of electrified vehicles. And electrified doesn't just mean plugified either. Toyota offers more low and zero emissions vehicles combined than any other automaker, so you have choices that fit your lifestyle. Whether you want a hybrid EV that starts and handles like a traditional Toyota with better MPG, a battery EV that delivers a smooth, silent, clean ride, or a plug-in hybrid EV that goes between battery and fuel to give you the best of both worlds, Toyota has you covered. And for those of you who prefer hydrogen, Toyota's fuel cell EVs emit nothing but water vapor from the tailpipe. So cool. But it doesn't stop with vehicles. Toyota is decreasing its plastic waste, supporting water conservation efforts, and expanding programs that protect critical species, all to help reduce their environmental footprint and create a positive impact on society giving you the choice on how to reduce carbon emissions. That's Toyota's Beyond Zero Vision. Visit toyota.com slash electrify dash vehicles slash beyond dash zero dash vision. Toyota, let's go places.
7: Grace did a lot of interviewing after Harvard and finally landed a position with EMCC, a startup in Philadelphia that was eventually acquired by the Remington Rand Corporation. She became part of the team that developed the Univac One computer, the first known large-scale electronic computer to go to market. Unlike her team at Harvard, Grace's team at EMCC was mostly women.
2: That computer startup company, I think, is also the saving grace for her own career and her own sanity in some respects as well.
7: See, after the war, computer science and programming jobs in the private sector often became viewed as women's work. It's a concept we do very well to remember today.
2: Juxtapose that now with, you know, the images I grew up in the 1980s of kind of the male geek who is the computer programmer. It's good to remember that during the 1950s, software and program was actually dominated by Grace and her team of women.
7: It was while she was at EMCC that Grace began to think of something fairly revolutionary. She began to think that computer languages could be more intuitive, could even be based on the English language.
6: We had proposed that originally, and it sure got clobbered.
2: So by this point, Hopper had demonstrated this notion of coding. She became the head of automatic programming for UNIVAC. The early tenets of software start being formed at Eckhart and Mowgli Corporation by Hopper. And then, of course, that seminal moment is when she invents the compiler.
7: At the time, computer languages were written using a mixture
6: of wildly confusing symbols and binary code. There was another bunch of people who were in data processing who hated symbols and wanted words. So why not give them a
2: word-oriented language? The key to allowing that, though, is you need to create a translator, right? Some technology which translates our language into something the computer can understand. So that's what a compiler is. Without the invention of the compiler, there are no high-end programming languages.
7: After inventing the compiler, Grace moved on to start creating the first computer languages. That's when other computing companies started adopting her compiler system.
2: The problem was... They started writing programs that were incompatible on different hardwares. So she decided to go to the Department of Defense and suggest that they create a two-day conference with all the leaders in the industry. And over those two days, design a universal business language. And that universal business language would be able to run on any type of hardware.
7: That language was called COBOL, or Common Business Oriented Language. It's a computer language for data processors, or in simpler terms, a computer language by humans for humans that would tell computers what to do.
6: I could say subtract income tax from pay instead of trying to write that in octocode or using all kinds of symbols.
2: It was a radical break from all previous human technology because she's suggesting that we can, through software, continue to get the hardware to act the way we want it to.
7: Kobol went on
2: to become the most
7: widely used computer language of the time.
2: COBOL starts becoming universally adopted in the 1960s and it really allows the computer industry to enter its growth phase. So in the early 60s, you have a young son of a department store owner named Sam Walton who learns COBOL and realizes he can start managing inventory better, which would eventually grow into a Walmart empire. You have an intern working at a very small investment bank in New York City called Morgan Stanley, and he introduces Morgan Stanley to COBOL, and 10 years later, he's now the CEO of Morgan Stanley.
7: During the first half of the 60s, Grace Hopper was probably the largest proponent of getting COBOL universally adopted. She would ultimately receive the nickname Grandma COBOL. It was a compliment.
2: Interestingly enough, she still has this desire to be a naval officer. Her grandfather was an admiral, so I think that always was in the back of her head. So she pretty much convinces the Navy at a time where most of us would retire to let her re-enlist as an officer and let her focus on spreading computer technology through the Navy and the Department of Defense. And so they take her up on her offer, and she ends up having a 20-year career in the military and rises to the rank of admiral.
7: Educating people about technology was Grace's entire life. Before this, she'd had a different life. She'd already been a wife. She'd already been a professor. But this, this is the life she actually wanted.
2: Her personal life was, I think, so intertwined with her career. She definitely had long-term friends who were all connected with the computer industry. So I, I think the two just kind of melded together by this point.
7: Grace Hopper spent most of her career
6: figuring out how to make technology available to real humans. People are scared of computers. Just as I can remember, there were people scared to death of telephones wouldn't go near him. We've always gone through this with every change. In
7: that way she was the predecessor of consumer tech Titans like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs.
6: But she was humble about her achievements until the very end. One thing is that people try to make me something extra. They totally fail to realize that everything I've ever done was not genius effect. It was all straightforward common sense at the time. How can you get this done?
2: She was a master at motivating people, at winning them over, at functioning in maybe hostile environments or male-dominated environments. It was her leadership as much as her scientific creativity, which helped create some of the core technologies of the Fourth Industrial Revolution.
6: We're just getting started we're just beginning to meet what we will be doing in the future. Big rewards go to the people who take the big risks.
7: Time for a quick break. When we get back, we'll be in the studio with Parisa Tabriz, a director of engineering at Google, where she oversees its Chrome web browser and a team of security investigators. Like Grace before her, she's been a groundbreaker, a coder, and a boss. In her work at Google, she honors Grace's legacy every day.
0: at bp.com slash
4: america Toyota believes in the power of personal choice for reducing carbon emissions. Beyond Zero is their vision to go beyond carbon neutrality, and they're working toward it with a diverse lineup of electrified vehicles. And electrified doesn't just mean plugified either. Toyota offers more low and zero emissions vehicles combined than any other automaker, so you have choices that fit your lifestyle. Whether you want a hybrid EV that starts and handles like a traditional Toyota with better MPG, a battery EV that delivers a smooth, silent, clean ride, or a plug-in hybrid EV that goes between battery and fuel to give you the best of both worlds, Toyota has you covered. And for those of you who prefer hydrogen, Toyota's fuel cell EVs emit nothing but water vapor from the tailpipe. So cool. But it doesn't stop with vehicles. Toyota is decreasing its plastic waste, supporting water conservation efforts, and expanding programs that protect critical species, all to help reduce their environmental footprint and create a positive impact on society, giving you the choice on how to reduce carbon emissions. That's Toyota's Beyond Zero Vision. Visit toyota.com slash vehicles slash beyond zero vision. Toyota. Let's go places.
3: No one likes to talk about money. Am I saving enough? Can I buy a house? Am I paying too much in taxes? Will I be able to retire? What if you could unlock insights about your finances in less than five minutes with a clear picture of where you stand today and where your money can work harder? Now you can. Visit facet.com to take the free quiz and get your financial wellness score today. That's F-A-C-E-T.com. This ad is sponsored by Facet. Facet Wealth Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice.
7: Welcome back. According to the data, only about 20% of all tech jobs today are held by women. Parisa Tabriz, who will be joining us in the studio today, is one of those women. She's a rock star at Google, overseeing the Chrome browser and helping to manage security for the billions of people who are using it every single day. In 2012, Forbes magazine included Parisa in their top 30 people under 30 to watch in the technology industry. In 2013, she took over security for Google Chrome. Her business card includes a title she chose for herself. It reads, Security
5: Princess. I do think it challenges probably what a stereotype of a princess is. And I love giving it to people when I meet them because I think it catches their eyes just like, what? And makes actually an icebreaker moment of like, we can do very serious work, but I don't think we have to take ourselves seriously. Life is short. So... You have a cat named Grace Hopper. I named my cat Grace just because Grace Hopper is one of these people in history who's pretty amazing. And I also just like the name. I have a a colleague at Google who just got a puppy and named it Hopper, also after Grace Hopper. And so it's this weird new generation of pets who I think are coming and being named after Grace Hopper, which would I imagine be super amusing to Grace Hopper because I think she had a good sense of humor. Tell me a little bit about how you got into this field, how you got into computer science and coding in the first place. It was very accidental. My parents are, they're professionals and they work in the healthcare space. And I think that my dad probably wanted me to become a doctor, but I kind of didn't want to become a doctor in part just to not do what he wanted. I really liked math and I'm from Illinois and our university had a really good engineering program. So learned how to do web development and build websites, and then one of my personal websites actually got hacked. I was defaced by some hackers. And that got me into security. So found a really good group of friends and a club at my school about hacking and security, and at some point realized I could get a job in that. Did you face any challenges in the industry,
7: or were there a lot of other women in the industry when you
5: started? Yes, I have definitely faced a lot of challenges. You know, some of them I would actually say are probably rooted in self-doubt and that I can't necessarily attribute to any one individual or any one circumstance. But in college, it became really apparent that once I had taken on an engineering degree, the gender ratios were very different than what I was used to in high school, where it was pretty balanced. I actually remember before getting my first internship, and it was at Google, a male colleague who I actually thought was a friend had said I had an easier job getting the internship as a woman, you know, because people were looking to hit certain ratios. And, you know, in hindsight, I can probably say, well... probably was some insecurity on his side but that definitely stung and made me question whether I belonged or whether I was getting an easier path and that self doubt I think has been one of the biggest challenges like do I belong in this industry grace hopper is such a cool example of challenging that because i think if you know you were to say like what does an engineer look like what does a scientist or mathematician look like it's not a tiny woman who's outspoken and so yeah a lot of it is is do i belong and I think that summarizes a big fuel for insecurity. Yeah.
7: And reading her story and listening to her biographer talk, you wouldn't think, oh, yeah, the the engineer behind the first programming language, behind the first computer. It wasn't this tiny little woman who in all of the pictures of those teams is kind of in the background. Like you look at those pictures yep. and you think... Maybe she was the, and it's terrible that we think that's what we do. Maybe she was the assistant or maybe she was the secretary because that was the time when women were secretaries. You don't think she totally, was the number totally. two on this project.
5: Yep. And and I've run into that too, where, um, you know, people will think I'm the assistant or the, you know, admin or the PR person or the marketing person, or the, like the logistics person for even, you know, when I'll attend a conference when then I'm actually like the invited speaker. And so now I, at this point in my career, I think I have a lot more confidence and can find the humor in it. But it definitely pecks away at your self-confidence. And I think that's why it's actually so important for us to remember and share the stories of people like Grace Hopper, but also kind of everyone who doesn't maybe fit that stereotype mold you are an important person
7: at Google. What was it like climbing through the ranks of that company? I mean, how hard was it to get where you are
5: today? It was a lot of hard work, uh, for sure. And I I don't in any way mean to to glamorize it, but also don't want to be ungrateful. I think early on, I was lucky to have a number of allies, most of which were men, who would Sponsor me for opportunities that maybe I didn't know about in the first place and would take bets on me. And so I feel lucky and grateful for that. I had to ultimately do the work and demonstrate that I could deliver. What can we do to get more women in the room? What do we need to be doing right now to get more girls and young women involved in STEM and programming? So many things. And I think this is a really, really complex problem. I am encouraged by. Being able to expose kids to to coding way earlier, and that to me means that people, when they're in those early years and fearless and don't worry about being bad at something, actually can develop some early, early coding skills. And it just doesn't end up being this thing where, oh, only guys do it in college if they've been doing it since early on. And then also, again, I actually think that busting some of the stereotypes of what an engineer should be or what a technologist should be could help too, because... If you can't see it, you know, you can't be it. There's culture problems. There's systemic problems that are larger than just tech, for sure, that I think we have to acknowledge and talk about and try to really challenge. I try to focus on progress. And when I have heard about Grace Hopper's story and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's story and some of the other women leaders who really, really challenged gender norms, I do try to be grateful for how things are definitely not perfect today, but have improved. What are some of the cultural challenges in tech that women still face? We use the term microaggression in some ways where any one incident of whether, you know, you're the only woman in a room and you're constantly being talked over or you're the only woman in a room and an idea that you shared a week earlier is now being claimed by somebody else. These things end up building up and we call them microaggressions because ultimately it's what I think people leave tech over. It's sort of like death by a thousand cuts. I do think that tackling some of the diversity challenges in tech is very much going to be successful or not based on the participation of people with privilege and in a big part that is men. And so they're both like in a power to make change as well as in a position to where in some cases they're creating the problems. (laughs) As a woman, I, I still have probably been born during the best period of history and and I hope that we can just kind of continue to improve it so the next generation has a little bit easier, Um, although it's going to take some time to fully address all the challenges for women in computing.
1: We're very grateful to our guests, Kurt Beyer, Advisor to Entrepreneurs in Disruptive Technologies at University of California, Berkeley, and Parisa Tabriz, Security Princess at Google. Grace Hopper is voiced by Kristen Reeves. The male voices in this episode were all done by Jacob Von Fierce is hosted and written by Joe Piazza, produced and directed by me, Anna Stumpf. Our executive producers are Joe Piazza, Nikki Etor, Anna Stumpf, and from Tribeca Studios, Leah Sarbib. This episode was edited by Jacob Openzo and Aaron Kaufman and soundscaped by Anna Stumpf, Jacob Openzo, and Aaron Kaufman. Our associate producer is Emily Marinoff. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Research by Lizzie Jacobs. The Fierce theme is by Hamilton Lighthouser and Anna Stumpf. Additional music for this episode by Aaron Kaufman. Our very sincere thanks to Mangesh Hatikador for making this series possible. And to Nikki Etor, our co-executive producer, thank you so much for the daily mountains you moved to make this show happen. Sources for this episode, Grace Hopper and the Invention of the Information Age by Kurt Beyer. An oral history of Captain Grace Hopper by the Computer History Museum. Interview conducted by Angeline Pontage, Naval Data Automation Command in Maryland in December of 1980. A 60-minute segment entitled, The Captain is a Lady, from March 6 of 1983. Thank you so much for listening. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
3: No one likes to talk about money. Am I saving enough? Can I buy a house? Am I paying too much in taxes? Will I be able to retire? What if you could unlock insights about your finances in less than five minutes with a clear picture of where you stand today and where your money can work harder? Now you can. Visit facet.com to take the free quiz and get your financial wellness score today. That's F-A-C-E-T.com. This ad is sponsored by Facet. Facet Wealth Incorporated is an SEC registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride.